You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR 102.7 FM. You have myself, Thomas Caldwell, along with my hosts, <laughs> my hosts, <laughs> Josh Nelson and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hi, Thomas. Good evening, Hostmaster. <laughs> Hi, our Thomas. <laughs> and we should just quickly mention Cerise Howard is going to be absent for the next few weeks. She's travelling an international film festivalinging. On tonight's show... Paul Dano and John Cusack both play Beach Boys leader and co-founder Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy, a new film that, well, I'm going to argue anyway, avoids some of the usual trappings of the biopic to present an impression of this very troubled musical genius. And speaking of which, we'll also be discussing Amy, a new documentary about jazz and R&B singer-songwriter Amy Winehouse. I just realised it's um, just under... It's almost four years ago to, to this day. That, that she died. And finally, just ahead of its upcoming season at Cinema Nova, we re-watched the cult 1960s English, English classic If. So we'll let you know how it holds up towards the end of the show. But let's look at Love and Mercy. This is directed by a guy called Bill Pollard, who has primarily worked as a producer and in recent years you know, really good films such as Wild, Twelve Years a Slave, and The Tree of Life. It's and it's co-written by a game. Uh, it's co-written by a guy called Oran Moverman, who wrote and directed The Messenger, really strong Woody Harrelson film that I, I really liked. And he also, interestingly enough, wrote the the Bob Dylan biopic of sorts, I'm Not There. So he has got a background, I think, in presenting you know the lives of famous musicians in uh, a very interesting way. So hang on, sorry, he wrote the Todd Haynes film. Yeah. Oh right. There you go. Sorry, interrupt. Which is interesting because I think there are some very creative flares in Love and Mercy, not nearly to the extent that we saw in I'm Not There, but they're there. So look, it's a film about Brian Wilson, who I think today is fairly widely regarded and recognised as a musical genius. He founded the Beach Boys, and you know this is a band that dominated the 1960s with their pop music, um, what was known as surf music, although, as the film points out, surfers weren't into their, their music at all. That's not what they listened to. We have Paul Dano portraying Wilson uh, in the 1960s during the period where he was recording Pet Sounds. Now, this is an album that used many experimental techniques uh, to record you know, both sound effects and, and the actual music. It was a huge departure for the band, and now it's regarded as one of the all-time great pop albums. And I was actually quite pleased in the film, we actually see them recording the, the, the instrumental track Pet Sounds, which Triple R listeners will be familiar with if they listen to Tony Biggs on, on The Blower. That's the music he always finishes his show with. I, I can't help but identify that song now with, with, with Triple R on a Friday afternoon. Um, and this is also the period where Wilson's um, dominance started to upset some of the other band members when he started experimenting with drugs and he became overwhelmed with, with the voices and the noise in his head. Now, we, we see this story and it's intercut throughout the film with a parallel story showing Wilson in the 1980s where he's now played by John Cusack. And this charts the development of his romantic relationship with a car salesperson played by... Uh, played by Elizabeth Banks, and part of this relationship included her becoming increasingly concerned that Wilson was not receiving proper care from his therapist, a guy called Dr Eugene Landy, played by Paul Giamatti. 
Look, from the outset, I, I really liked the, 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 some, the form and approach of this biopic, which is not to show you the person's story from start to finish, which is what we get in so many biopics. And I struggle to think of any film using that format that's, that's all that engaging. So we just have two chapters of the, this man's life to give an impression of their entire life. The storyline featuring Paul Dano especially, I think, is really, really strong. And the highlight of this film is seeing him in the middle of his creative process, recording this extraordinary album. The storyline featuring Cusack, it's a little bit more conventional. I still really enjoyed it, though, and I I was surprisingly moved by the resolution. I think the final scene has a perfect... um, Edits from from the final moment to credits, which actually I was surprised at how moved I was by that moment. And interestingly, whenever we talk about any art form from a narrative base, the rule is don't tell, show. This film repeatedly breaks that rule in a way I really liked. Instead of seeing some of the traumatic incidents from his past, we have him describing them. So being beaten by his father as a boy, the breakdown of his first marriage, his complete mental breakdown, which resulted in a very long period where he just stayed in bed. The film doesn't sort of show this, which a conventional biopic would. It has him tell other characters in conversation. And I found that so much more effective because it's, it's his kind of way of describing it, which... And his way of um, sort of trying to deny the impact it had on him actually comes across, across as quite profound. Uh, I really like that approach. Like I said, this is not as radical as something as I'm not there, but there's some really great innovations in this film. There's a stunning soundscape created by Atticus Ross, who's recently worked with David Fincher and a lot of his soundtracks. And this soundscape is used to convey Wilson's auditory hallucinations. So Wilson did hear, he says a lot of his ideas for music came from the sounds in his head, but he did also hear voices, and this is something he still is, he takes medication to manage, although today I believe he manages it extremely well. Um, and, and, in this, and in this soundscape involves a sort of mashup of classic Beach Boys song. It's not available as a soundtrack yet, but apparently they're working on the rights to release it, and I, I would love to get the soundtrack to this film. And I've got to say, of all the films to reference 2001 as Space Odyssey, the homage at the end of this film is one of the strangest tips of the hat to 2001 I've ever seen. It just, it's a very odd film to, sort of a, to, to use a very uh, direct visual... It's sort of a, a, a it's sort of a editing pattern, I suppose, that the end of two thousand one is famous for. Um, look, I yeah, I'll throw it over. I think you can tell that I really got a lot out of this film. I, I was really quite enthusiastic about it. I really enjoyed it. In hindsight, there are one or two quibbles I may have, which may come up in conversation. But overall, this ticked all the boxes for me. I suspect the scene or the montage sequence you're describing is the one involving him in bed and his period. When he's bedridden, is that the one? Yeah, and sort of seeing different incarnations of himself, yeah. And I thought that was really effective. In fact, I thought when this film departed most strongly from the typical tropes of the biopic, the the conventional narrative, the conventional romance, when it wasn't trying to be so excessively reverential, which I think is one of the weaknesses of this film, occasionally it does overdo the fact that Brian Wilson is a genius... And we get it, we see it, we don't need to keep being reminded so constantly, I, I think. And I think it's also actually most biopics work better when there's a little bit of balance, when there's a bit of depth to character, when we see some of the darkness as opposed to just the abundance of light. And some of the stylistic tropes, like the one you mentioned, that montage sequence with the bed, the sequences where at certain points they bring in what appears to be or what could be footage from sort of, say, music video clips when we have almost um, sequences reminiscent of things like the Beatles film Help or the Monkeys movies where they 
they seem to be playing in these hijinks. Like there's a moment where they're all carrying a surfboard and jumping in wacky kind of crazy ways into their swimming pool while we hear some of the music. But it's not just played for fun. We, we've seen the dark side, so it's almost as if we get the sense that the film is playing on the perception of the Beach Boys while at the same time trying to reveal the darkness underneath. And I liked it when it was using those type of sequences, particularly the, the soundtrack as well. There's a moment early on. In fact, I think it's it's the second sequence. So we get an introductory scene and then we get just a scene of, or the screen is dark for quite an extended period of time and we hear the voices, we hear the music. It's a strange, very yeah. ominous moment to, to establish his character. And that again, pretty much won me over that sequence. <laughs> that was when I, I felt I was in safe hands because yeah. I have to admit, I'm not a fan of biopics like you. I find them really pedestrian. I find they often have nothing to say except for these are events from this person's life and then they died. You know, but this doesn't do that. And I thought, you know, it's strongest when it, when it was playing to the deviations from that. I also think Paul Dano is really, really great. I think he's the highlight of the film for me. I thought, you know, I've had a, almost a perception, perhaps unfairly, that Dano has been a bit of a one-note actor or he's been kind of boxed into a certain type of wacky, crazy, idiosyncratic performer. But we see a lot of depth here. I think he really excels, de- definitely more so than the, the Cusack, I thought. But I also thought Elizabeth Banks was good. I think she's re- I think I don't think she gets the credit that she deserves. I think she's been a strong performer for a number of years now. I'm glad you said that because I think she's really good in what could be a very difficult role. Like, you know, th- th- that character could be a- accused of just being um, a-, a gold digger and I think she genuinely conveys a sincere woman who is in love with this man even if she's not too sure why. And the other, or the other side of the coin I think is Paul Giamatti, an actor I have a lot of time for but here he comes off as a, a fairly ridiculous two-dimensional villainous type and again I think it was one of those weaknesses of the script and it, it played it to a typical conventional biopic type of character in a, in a very obvious type of role where I, I get the sense that there may have been a greater degree of complexity with that Landy's character's role in Brian Wilson's life. I agree with uh, a lot of what you, both of you guys have said. I think that biopics, I mean, they're such a such a hazy t- t- sort of domain to start thinking through. For me, biopics work best when they're not trying to preach to the converted. And this film, I feel, kind of is. Um, I think that it's assuming that people coming in to watch this already have quite strong feelings about the subject, which I do. I mean, Pet Sounds, I think that we're all in agreement, and we're certainly not alone. Pet Sounds is really one of the great pop albums. Yep. It's um, seeing this film, I, I just, I'd have to rush out and get this album immediately. I forgot how much I love this album. And some of my favourite scenes in this film were absolutely the, the sequences in the studio. Um, where they were recording uh, pet sounds, where they were recording good vibrations. They're just magical. I mean, that's, those to me are the really memorable scenes from this film. I've put down exactly the same thing about Paul Dano's performance. I think it's one of the best performances I've seen in a film this year. I, I was so impressed with, with the the delicacy and the sensitivity and also the power, yep. this strength, this really interesting tensions just bubbling away under the surface in his performance. And also I've, I've also put down uh, Elizabeth Banks as well. I think that she carries the film in large part. Um, I, I think it would be really easy to underestimate this film, um, but it's very much a story about uh, Melinda and Brian, and I think that she really gives that a lot of credit. That being said, I, I felt that this was half a good film. I don't, I don't want to take your T-bird away, Thomas, but <laughs> here we are. Um, I, I really like the 60s stuff. Uh, my only complaint about the 60s stuff at all would be that the, the kind of Instagram filter got a little annoying for me. It was a little... I just didn't aesthetically oh, work I, for me. I like that stylistic device of trying too. to make it look yeah. like it was shot on film, like one of their old clips. It, 
the mise-en-scene I thought was perfect. I actually yeah. really, really loved the set, um, you know, the, the, the props and, and the costumes and things like that. I thought they were beautiful. But I did start getting a little twitchy about, yeah, I think once I had that word Instagram float up to my 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 mind, I was starting Bloody to get Instagram. a little bit. It just seemed a bit of an obvious way to kind of draw a distinction between 80s and 60s. But that was perhaps just a personal taste thing. Um that being said, the 80s stuff I really struggled with. I was really disappointed with John Cusack. I, I get the, f- I had the feeling that this was almost a kind of cynical casting decision. It's like if you bring the Beach Boys together with John Cusack, you're almost guaranteed a very specific kind of male audience who are going to come for these two reasons. I, and I don't mean that he was. It was a bad performance. Um, I was just constantly aware that I was watching John Cusack playing. Brian Wilson, um, just constantly, constantly aware. There wasn't one moment where I forgot that it was John Cusack. And that's no... I mean, that's just because I guess he's such an such an omnipresent face. Mm. But it, it it really didn't... Those sections just really didn't carry it for me in the way that the 60s stuff did. I also really struggled, I think, with a lot of the way that mental health was dealt with in this film. Um, particularly, the I found the ending actually quite shocking. I, th- I thought, have they lost some pages of script like this this sort of this storyline that's kind of run through the film about the the abuse that he has suffered at the hands of his therapist it vanishes in under five minutes i mean we're told just oh yeah no he's gone it's okay i, I don't even think that's a spoiler is that a spoiler i think we all know it's based story. on a true story so yeah i, I think that that's kind of spoiler it is, yeah. amy winehouse died yeah i mean we'll, we'll put oh, this all man. yeah i know there we go. i'm just 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 on the end, I thought, like Thomas, I thought it was it, it hit a really perfect note in terms of the way in which the camera pulls away and we don't really hear what's said. And there was a degree of ambiguity. Where I actually agree with you is I think um, that that sentiment and the, the tone that it ends is almost undercut by just how many title cards we get. I always feel yes. a bit suspicious felt, when a biopic has to me. too many title cards mm-hmm. to give the audience too much information after the fact. You know, that's where, again, one of those things that's that's... Uh, a trope of the biopic that seemed to go against the grain of much of what this film was doing when it when it moved away from those tropes. Mm. I hear what you're saying. I, I think look, it's a very reverential film. It is showing it definitely the good stuff. Yep. I was almost relieved that we didn't have to see all the really horrible, m- miserable him at his worst. I mean, I actually kind of like that. I went into this as somebody who's always so much about him at his worst. It was more more of the case that the his cue at the, the end, the yeah. plot, um, <laughs> and it was. I, I quite liked the use of the soundtrack in that last yep. scene yep. too. The um, wouldn't it be nice i thought yeah. it was pitch perfect hmm. um it was a beautifully a beautiful way to end that and i love that that final scene but it was more what what happened before that it felt that there was a bit missing and i'm not big on plot as you guys know i'm very much a kind of substance over style uh, style over substance kind of girl but it just felt very very rushed to me at the end and this tension between is he a genius because of his mental health issues it just didn't kind of didn't nail it for me i felt no you know what i it's it's dancing around things that i think that it needs to articulate you see one of my big bugbears is this idea is someone who abuses drugs or is suffering from mental health issues that's the explanation for their yes, genius I, that is I one of my pet too. hates so my radar was really on and oh, I, I had no problem with this film because i think it showed us the truth of the matter which is when you're suffering from these conditions it stops your creative output like i mean the film makes it very clear that the smile album happened decades later than it was meant to because he had a complete collapse it just felt the ending felt a little bit kind of almost um just the magical fairy came down and fixed everything and now and then he's okay it just felt kind of sudden and abrupt. See, Maybe it's because I don't cards. know the story. Maybe it's because I don't, because I wasn't already. Mm. 
Um, I mean, I knew the story loosely, like a kind of Wikipedia knowledge of, of, of his life, but I didn't know the details of it. And, and that, yeah, it, yeah. I love stepping, the 60s stuff. I really love the 60s stepping stuff. Stepping back and rethinking about it, I see exactly what you mean. But, but, but while watching the film, I got to that, towards the end, I was just aching for his happiness. Like, I wanted that. I wanted it to resolve the way it did. But if I step back now a bit more critically, I see what you're saying. I think the 80s stuff suffers from just not being as good as the 60s stuff. Um, yeah. But I think part of that, it just came to me then about Cusack and what he has to work with, is he doesn't have the music. That's not an element of, of his story. And I think that that is important for the reason you've just mentioned in terms of the mental illness. It's not a case of the musical Mozartian genius keeps going despite the fact he's bedridden and comatose and being, you know, overdosed with these sort of uh, antipsychotics and, and, and so on. And I think, like you, Thomas, I thought they handled that relatively well. A bit like Frank. I thought Frank did a, another really good job of, of dealing with the what is the relationship between mental illness and genius. And I think this manages to get... Well, it gets a pass from me on that score for what it's worth. Three, triple, ah. This is the documentary, Amy. Well, as you said before, it's almost four years exactly since Amy Winehouse died of alcohol poisoning at the age of 27 after a very long public battle with substance abuse. And I think even if you were relatively indifferent to her when she was alive, chances are this film will make you re- reassess that in a really fundamental way. I never personally identified as an Amy Winehouse fan per se, but there was a time, I think it's fair to say, I don't know what you guys think, but there was a period when you couldn't go into a supermarket or a cafe or go to a house party and not hear Back to Black. I mean, it was it was ubiquitous. It was just everywhere. Do you know, I, I somehow missed the entire thing. I, I, don't, I, I think I might have been travelling at the time and I just wasn't tapped into any popular culture. Even watching this film, I didn't recognise a single That's really song. I just remember wow. it being everywhere. Yeah, no, it like, somehow missed me. Isn't that funny how that can sort of happen? I'm like that with Lady Gaga, but we're not talking about oh, Lady yeah. Gaga. No, we're not. Or the Pet Shop Boys. Just stop or, it. No. <laughs> I will never stop. I will never stop. This documentary is really marked by its quite remarkable use of archived material. There is, um, it's, it's kind of put together. It consists of, of personal video footage, uh, or a lot of personal f- video footage and other kinds of video footage, stemming back to Winehouse's teenage years. And, I mean... I was converted. I pretty unquestioningly fell in love with the woman that this documentary is about after coming in with a relatively, not a hater, but not really a fan by any stretch of the imagination. So it, it rendered me a convert. Um, the director, Asif Kapadia, is that how we pronounce his name? Excuse me if that's incorrect. <laughs> Don't look at me. Um, he had a pretty strong re- reputation already based on his documentary about another live fast, die young pop cultural icon, quite literally uh, live fast um, in the award-winning 2010 documentary about the late Brazilian motor racing champion um, Ayrton. Ayrton. Yeah. Ayrton Senna. Thank you. I'm sorry. Making a mess of this tonight. <laughs> it's good. Where's the respect? It's not happening. Um, he also and he died quite young too. He died at 34. So uh, Capadia certainly has um, had a tr- good track record with these kind of films. Um, he has a real really clear dexterity and a real flair for storytelling um, and he weaves together this quite remarkable body of archive video footage of Winehouse kind of starting with the you know it's a rise and fall story I was thinking a lot when I was watching this of the um, 1979 Bette Midler film The Rose it's uh, it's the same kind of story I mean obviously that one is a, a kind of fictional retelling of the Joplin story and this is a, a true story 
At the same time, I found that it was also very contemporary. Amy's a really contemporary film because it's got such a fascination with um, contemporary celebrity culture and how actual real talent can often be in direct conflict with that kind of ominous industrial machine of stardom. At its best, this film gives Winehouse her voice back um, and I think it's it's through that voice, both when she spoke and particularly when she sang, it, that's how I made my connection with Amy Winehouse. Um, it was very much a film about that voice and, and the way that she chose to communicate through song. I was quite affected by her humour and her intelligence and a kind of really grounded self-awareness. Um, it's almost like a mantra in the film that becomes more and more poignant as it continues that she just kept saying over and over again that she didn't want to become famous because she knew that it would destroy her and it's quite spooky watching that that all being said there were some things about this documentary that i weren't so crash hot on but i won't get into that yet i might open it up to you guys and we can come back to my debbie downer observations oh okay interesting i look i i fell head over heels in love with her as a as a performer and a person um so if nothing else the documentary i think conveys who she really was about midway through i had a really sad realization and we just said before how i somehow missed her music like i wasn't aware of any of it but i was aware of this person who was a pop singer at the time who was taking too many drugs and was a public spectacle and a disaster that and I somehow absorbed that through osmosis. I don't watch a lot of trashy television or listen to crappy radio stations, but still that, that, that image of her got under my skin, and that's how I knew her. And then watching this film showed how prevalent that, that message was, how the media just latched on to exploiting her at her most vulnerable. Um, you know, there's a couple of very interesting moments. Early in her career, um, you know... People love the fact that she was something of, of a rebel. And her manager at the time said, you know, we didn't have a... His expression was there weren't any gobby young women around at the time. So she kind of fulfilled that position. And you watch the, the, some of those early interviews with her. And she's so... She doesn't suffer fools. She's so smart. She's quick-witted. She's not nasty or unpleasant. She's just really on fire. And, uh, you know, huge respect for her and, you know, just really liked her shtick. And then it's just so sad what happened later on through, uh, I think, quite a, a complex chain of uh, events and reasons. And I quite like the fact, I don't think the film points any... F- it doesn't point a finger at anything particular that happened. It was just a combination of her own dark desires, a few really bad influences on her life, and the fact that she was turned into this horrible spectacle. So, if nothing else, I really, really like the fact the film sets the record straight and shows us that this is a woman with enormous talent. I mean, she wasn't a manufactured pop princess... She was the exact opposite. She despised that. She was a talented lyricist. I mean, it wasn't that just that she had this amazing voice. She was a damn fine writer, and and I love the fact the film often shows her performing songs intercut with you know footage from her real life, with uh, the, the lyrics printed on screen. It c- takes on a whole new context, and you realise just how much. She, what she was singing about was what she was living. And I've gone and bought the albums and I've listened to them a lot since seeing this, this, this film. And it, it is really kind of moving but also stirring and, and powerful stuff. So, look, I'm really glad I finally got a sense of who she was as much as you can possibly get. And it's the kind of image of her that I feel I should have, not like the one I used to have. And that, that's something. Yeah, I almost had a similar perception of Amy Winehouse to you, Thomas. I wasn't a fan of her music, not because I disliked, just because I'd never 
sat down and listened to Back to Black, apart from the ones I'd heard in supermarkets. Um, I probably could have named you maybe two of her, her, her songs. And the perception was the, the popular culture kind of tabloid perception. And this has changed things. I, I spent all weekend listening, oscillating between Pet Sounds and Back to Black. Um, and there's a line that, that early on in this documentary that I think is that has stuck with me and it really captures her well, and that is she's an old soul in a young person's body. I think that you get that sense from the the early parts of this documentary where the footage that Kapadia has assembled is often home movie footage, footage filmed from friends' phones, from kind of camcorders and and so on. And even as a young teenager, I think the film, we get footages back as maybe her 14-year-old sort of self. Yeah, it's how it starts. And the strength of her voice and character feels... There's a strange disjunction between her voice and her character and her appearance and her age. And that, that is something that's carried through the film and it becomes something that's quite tragic in many ways because we almost forget how young she is and and how quickly she's been thrust into the limelight against her will as you mentioned alex and and how she's pays the price and the lack of parental guidance the lack of managerial guidance and the absolute culpability across this film not just and this is one of the strengths of the film i don't think it points the finger at any one particular mm. person but there are blood there is her blood on lots of people hands and and hers own as well i mean she does make choices which are highly questionable in, in response to her own well-being as as well um i just kept being struck when i was watching this documentary of the similarities with senna because they're not just surface there is a, a real remarkable type of similarity in terms of the death drive basically both of these people, Ayrton Senna and Amy Winehouse, had this gift, this this competitive streak. One was artistic, one was kind of sporting. But this keep pushing themselves, and this almost almost an adrenaline type of junkie or an emotional junkie that caused them ultimately to to die. And this way in which the film structurally both follows similar patterns in terms of they push towards death and then they pull back, and you think they're going to be fine, and they push forward again. He's, he clearly has a fixation with this type of of character or a similarity with character. As for the documentary itself, I think. The first half is the strongest, and I felt, I felt really uncomfortable watching her decline. I, I guess that's the point, and I think it's important. But it also raises a number of questions, and I, I'm not set on how I exactly I feel about this. Where does tabloid end, and the presentation of tabloid? begin and i think one of the interesting issues that this film raises given the subject and how averse she was to being a public spectacle is that it removes what privacy she had left and and the film is constructed with private home videos and there's a strange i guess irony that you know this is someone who craved privacy and Yet her, pri- her private moments have been filmed and have now become public. So in a sense, there's a, there's a strange ethical line which I film, think the film is treading. And obviously without that, we wouldn't have the film. So that's obviously one option. But I, I did feel more uncomfortable in the latter half of the film, particularly when the film finishes or crescendos to funeral footage. And I think maybe it crossed, it crossed a barrier for me at certain points of this film or made me feel more uncomfortable than just we're watching someone's slow demise. Yeah, look, I feel very much the same about that second half for, for very much that similar the reasons that you've suggested. Um, again, I need to emphasise, like, I, I, this film won me over to Amy Winehouse, full stop, and I think that we're all um, in the same kind of headspace with that. So in that, in that sense, it's a really successful documentary. Um, but I found that if you... I guess one of the general themes or messages of this film is look behind the tabloid story because there's more going on. And, and I found that at times it was almost hypocritical um, in its representation, so it was like, okay, you've got a you've got a vision of Amy Winehouse that's quite simplistic and two dimensional, and I, we're going to flesh that out, and we're going to do it with this archive material. 
the way that it represents some of the more negative figures in the film, I don't think it gives them that same consideration. So I don't know the real story about these people. I have opinions of them based on what I saw in this documentary. I'm talking specifically about Blake Fielder Civil and her father, Mitch Winehouse. But they are certainly not... I mean, I think feel that they are presented in a relatively tabloid kind of way. I think that there's a real look behind the story, look behind the tabloid... Um, except when it comes to the bad guys, because they're bad guys. And I, I didn't like that. I mean, I don't know what those people's stories are, like I said, but I felt that there was a little bit of a tension with that. Thomas, I found it fascinating. I'm really interested in the idea that you actually flagged one of the things that I liked the least about this film was the lyrics on screen. My my take for that was this film's about her voice and the way that she chose to communicate was through song. And... For me, the subtitles, and I think they were... Were they Comic Sans? Maybe I just had... Papyrus? Yeah, it wasn't a good choice of font, but it almost... I mean, first of all, it implied that you couldn't understand what she was saying, despite it being the way that she chose to communicate. And I know what you mean in that it actually was emphasising the importance of the lyrics, but she chose to communicate through song, and the director chose that that wasn't enough. I mean, to me, there was a real... The second half of the documentary is interesting because she speaks less. It's actually about her. the closer that she gets to death, the less she speaks, the less we hear from her. It's about Amy Winehouse losing her voice and losing the capacity to communicate, peaking in that horrendous final concert where she cannot sing on stage. I mean, it's quite a, a, quite a remarkable uh, tool, I guess, this idea of her losing her voice and losing that capacity to communicate in the way that she chose to to do and to make a remarkable career out of and there was just something about those those song the song lyrics being written that was almost for me in tension with her voice I I don't know if I'm communicating that correctly and I understand where you're coming from in that you felt that it actually highlighted them but for me that was more that they were undermining them or no, undermining her, her mode of communication, her see, method of communication. See, I think it's reminding us that she wrote these lyrics herself and she was a, a brilliant lyric lyric writer as well as being a singer. I, I felt it was a really important stylistic choice they made because I think that's, that aspect of her gets forgotten or, or is unknown. It's really interesting because I feel when exactly singing, the opposite. When someone's <laughs> so, singing, so you get lost in the, the, the beauty of the music and their voice and I think it was a really good way to make us focus on the actual lyrics. This is somebody, you know, I, I do listen to music and I don't absorb the lyrics. I, I just dig the music so I, I really valued seeing the lyrics written out and I don't think it was implying that we couldn't understand what she was saying. Oh no I don't think it, I don't think it was either I think yeah. that it was really trying to highlight as you said it was highlighting the, the beauty of the lyrics and mm. the power and the passion of the lyrics but she didn't choose to be a poet she chose to be a singer and a songwriter she didn't she didn't. She wasn't a, a, just a writer. She chose to communicate those words in a very particular kind of way. And to me, there was a little bit of, I don't know. I just it just sat uncomfortably with me. And I also like like I said, the font. Maybe it's just a font hate thing. <laughs> um, I, I got to get over my font hate. I don't have a problem with the fact they did it, but the execution felt clumsy in a documentary that was quite slick otherwise, particularly in terms of the voice, because we don't get talking heads. I think that's worth pointing out. We don't actually see interviews in terms of the visual content of the interviews that have been filmed for this film, we hear audio over archival material. And that was an interesting decision in, in its own right to give voice to these other characters and yet keep the, the focus on Amy Winehouse. But again, like the montage sequences in Love and Mercy, there's some interesting decisions here in terms of the way in which her songs, which we clearly get a, a sense that are therapy, that were, were the, the one thing keeping her from the kind of the, the madness and, and spiralling into the, the pit, become taken away from her when we see her 
her p- sing the same songs on on Leno and Letterman, and it's just this steady decline of these songs are losing their meaning for her, and her performance is suffering, and her engagement with the music is suffering. And what has she got left? This prick of a husband maybe there's more to it, as you mentioned and and drugs and that's something that's so sad that the one thing that was so sort of precious to her as an artist almost gets taken away from her through that commercialization mm. i yeah it's worth it is worth noting that her father mitch winehouse is very unhappy with this film and, and believes it paints him in a very unfavorable light but which which it does but whether it's true or not is a different Story. I mean, if we do see the fact that she was away on, you know, on a sort of rehab on an island, he brought a camera crew in to, to, to film her for a reality show. He, he was looks making despicable. And, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about him. I, I was a little bit prickly. There was an interview with the director where his defence was, "Oh no, we were totally objective." I always get really antsy when when documentary filmmakers consider themselves as totally objective. It's yeah, like, well, dude, sure. you're that's, a storyteller. A you, you've got a storyteller. <laughs> and a stra- mm. stark like, contrast to Alex Gibney, who refutes any sense of objectivity with his documentaries. Yep. Yeah, but look. I, I, I didn't have the same issues that you guys had about what, what it shows because I, I think one they had to use what footage there was and I, 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 re- I you know I got a real sense of the nightmare of what her life became with the constant blinding flashing lights so I just found it very very powerful and I, I found I was I was very self aware of the culpability of watching this this footage within the film um, that ethical question though about do you show footage of someone who wants to be private or you know do you publish the memoirs of a dead person I mean that's a huge 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 ethical debate which I've had in many different contexts but um and that's I, why yeah, I wanted to say I hadn't come down on a side. It was just something that I wanted to flag because I, I was aware of it in the second half of the film. Yeah, it's tricky. Look, I think she was a very complex person. I don't know if she wanted privacy necessarily. She just wanted it on a certain set of terms and it just got way out of control. Three triple R. Here on Plato's Cave, we're going to turn our attention now to the English cult classic If. Indeed. So this If was made in 1968 and from director Lindsay Anderson. Actually, two um, credits I noticed um, at the beginning of this film. The assistants to the director in this were Stephen Frears and Stuart Baird, two guys who've gone on as a director and as an editor to have quite decent careers of their own in, in, in cinema. So IF is set in a strict English boarding school in the late 1960s. It centres primarily on three of the elder pupils, uh, led by Mick Travis, played by a very young, in fact, in his feature debut, gorgeous Malcolm McDowell. And these students' run-ins and growing tension and violence that results from their run-ins with the whips, which are the school prefects and the school administration. This is clearly an influential film. This is almost feels a little bit like the prototypical boarding school meltdown film. And we've talked about a couple of these types of films. I think Scum, Scum reminded yeah. me of this. And in, in less positive ways, The Riot Club. And this is, I mean, you know, you can sort of see the, the roots of the influence of, the, of that type of narrative. But also on other cinematic levels, Malcolm McDowell's performance as Mick Travis in this film clearly was a blueprint for his performance as Alex in Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, which was only, I think, three years later. In fact, he's played Mick Travis three times. I didn't realise that this character has appeared in two subsequent British films. I knew of those two other films by Lindsay Anderson, Oh Lucky Man and... 
Britannia Hospital. That's the, the, Both that's films it. I've long meant. I used uh, to have VHS copies and I, I got rid of them in a car. remarkable. It's a great Yeah, film. I'd like to see those yeah. someday, yeah. Um, so the film's focus is on the student relations and the hierarchy of power within the boarding school and it works clearly as a fairly overt allegory of the dominant social structures of the 1960s and the call for revolution that was so prominent towards the end of the 60s and it's probably no coincidence in that regard that this film was released in 1968 which I guess is the year that they lit the powder keg and everything exploded. I think the film actually came out almost at the same time as the Paris riots. But if is far more than just a social satire. It's a biting, sharply directed critique of things like English tradition, uh, class privilege, and also nationalism, which becomes a key thread as the film goes on. It's also incredibly visually rich, and I think an occasionally a very beautiful film in, in regards as well. And it also presents violence as an inevitable product of social repression and inequality. And there's a wonderful sense of of anarchism at work in this film, particularly in the stylistic mode that Anderson works in. The film shifts repeatedly between colour and black and white film stock, and not in a way that can be reduced, I think, to a simplistic designation between this is reality and this is fantasy. In fact, it often shifts between that film stock within the context of the one scene. And I read a quote from uh, Malcolm McDowell, I think this is apparently on the audio commentary for one of the films, where he says the use of that stock was absolutely arbitrary and that he described Anderson as an absolute anarchist in this regard. Supposedly, from certain accounts, it was because they didn't have time to light certain sets and black and white was easier to to film on as opposed to (laughs) colour. But I guess, and maybe this is a good point to segue off, what I really found interesting uh, amid so much in, in this film is the way in which the film explores violence. And you get this stark sense of progression across the film that begins, violence begins in almost a casual, flamboyant manner. There's a scene in which the three older students are fencing and it's like this sort of Shakespearean comedy. Then you get a, almost a fantasy sort of surreal sequence involving two characters reenacting almost this sort of animalistic jungle poses in a cafe moment and then of course what the film is probably best renowned for is its crescendo of violence in the final moments in which I think you could state a case that it's either the fantasy has become reality or that the world of the film has completely blurred the boundaries so that the violence the violence as fantasy or violence as reality is now indistinguishable and that I think is what makes this such a biting and clever film. One of my first thoughts going into rewatch this film was is that ending going to be shocking in today's context of actual school shootings and it it kind of isn't because it is so slightly surreal and almost Monty Python-esque. There is something quite anarchic and really fun about it. And maybe that's possibly because this film is sort of an informal remake of the 1933 Zero for Conduct by Jean Vigo. And big shout-out to our co-host Cerise Howard who insisted that we all we all try to watch this film first. And it, it, this, you know, Zero for Conduct does contain the very core plot and character elements. And that also ends with the naughty schoolboys up on the roof except they're throwing tiles down upon the, their oppressed <laughs> Um, I mean, this is a stunning film, and I'm glad that there's not meant to be any sense to why it goes in the black and white, then back in the colour, because I was going nuts trying to figure <laughs> it out. The thing that really struck with me is just that culture of kind of um, that, that culture of authoritarian. Um, oppression and the way people willingly take part in it and it's the way I mean it's a beautiful metaphor for capitalism where you, you know one level of power gives authority over the next level 
to, to rule over the people below them, and everyone's quite complicit in this structure. And I've, I've, you know, I've referenced this before, but I went to a school that's not that far removed from this school, and the way the prefects behaved, the way they talked, their kind of pompous authoritarian bullshit. Oh, I'm getting, I'm really, get, I'm getting all, all my repressed angers coming. Well, the back language again. they used to describe the language, yeah, uh, they use the word they, they call the young kids scum. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, this is like the school I went to, and it, it is that kind of you maintain order by giving people a little bit of power down the line to oppress the people below them. And the people below them um, agree to this abuse because they know they're going to become older boys one day and they get to dish it out as well. And, yeah, that's a big part of this film. And then just quickly, the other thing that really struck me is this is a really queer film. I'd forgotten, actually, how strong the, the homosexual relationships between some of the boys is portrayed. And we see sort of both the predatory behaviour of some of these whips and one character even sit, you know, gets very angry at their adolescent homosexual flirting. And that contrasts to quite a beautiful relationship that happens between one of the older boys and one of the, the sort of middle school boys. There's a really lovely scene where this, this young boy watches the older boy um, on the high beam as a gymnast. And it, it's, it's, it's strangely... Well, it's not strange at all. It's, it's really quite romantic. It's quite a lovely moment in a film that's otherwise quite satirical and harsh. I, th- I think that this is a really fascinating film to watch from a 2015 perspective. I was really struck by how contemporary um, and almost urgent this sense of it being about a film about kind of radicalising youth. And and obviously this was made in the context, as you said, Josh, of May 68, mass strikes across France, student protests, pretty much shut France down and, you know, people were nervous. I mean, this film had an interesting release history in the UK on the back of these fears that this this film would prompt that kind of um, or provoke that kind of activity in Britain. I mean, this idea to the the kind of radical imagination of youth or a kind of militarised imagination is made quite explicit in the film. I mean, Malcolm McDowell's wall is covered in images of soldiers. There's a poster of Che Guevara at one point. So it makes that stuff pretty clear. It's not shy about it. There's a real sense of apocalypse, that the end is coming and that, that they need to start this kind of revolution. So on one hand, you've got that from a contemporary perspective that it's sort of looking forward but at the same time as you said the the uh, zero for conduct it's very much looking back and zero for conduct also shares that sort of surreal fantasy you know this bleeding between uh the kind of surreal aspects and, and these more kind of mundane banal and almost violence. random too yeah, the surreal really moments in both very films. similar films i mean and, and um you know the director was very clear about being strongly influenced by by the uh, vigo film Talking about school shooting films, one of the things I was thinking about them a lot when I was watching this as well, films like um, not just Elephant by Gus Van Sant, but uh, Dennis Villeneuve's Polytechnic. This is almost like a kind of prototype to then in one way, but the big difference, of course, is that this is the film about the, the perpetrators. We don't we don't get school shooting films that are solely kind of sympathetic to the revolutionary fundamentalist spirit of the uprising, you know, people. I mean, they're really quite. It's such an interesting film to watch, keeping all of these more contemporary, kind of quite serious issues in mind. This all being said, I think if we learn anything from if we need to really bring the um, the phrase "shag off you creep" back <laughs> back into the vernacular, I was so taken with that I actually played it like three or four times. It's like "shag off you creep." I'm going to say that all the time. I need to get that on a t-shirt. It's really good. <laughs> shag off. I just want to give a shout out to another moment. Speaking of influences before, and that is the photos you referred to. And there's a wonderful sequence towards the end where we see McDowell firing darts at this incredible photo montage that he's cut together and pasted across the walls. Which it's hard to watch without thinking of 
Scorsese's taxi driver and how influential that, oh, that, that sequence must have been to the way of the course. De Niro character looks at all the presidential photos on his walls and reenacts something very similar. But the other, the sequence of the caning and the way in which the, the cutaways during that sequence and the use of time and space and, slo- and slowing the, the stock down, it, it's just, it, there's such an intuitive sense of filmmaking and a, a wonderful sense of tone that I think this film is, still feels very rich and contemporary. It's very much on the back of um, Young Tallis as well. This came out a couple of years after the Scandinavian film Young Tallis, which is another kind of violent boarding school film. I think that's another film worth mentioning as well in terms of predecessors. But I think we can say If holds up remarkably well. And its, it's mysteries and ambiguity are still in there. I think it's one of those films that you're never going to fully decode. But it, it definitely it speaks to something that's still quite relevant today. I really relished re-watching this, and I think people should make the effort to, to, to go and see this if you, ha- if you haven't seen it before. And if you have seen it before, like I have, trust me, it gets way better on repeated viewings. It's one of those films. We're going to have to wind up Plato's Cave for this week. We will be back next Monday night to do it all again. We looked at Love and Mercy. That's on general release through Icon Film Distribution. We looked at Amy. That's on limited release through Entertainment One. And If will be screening at Cinema Nova as part of their Nova iconic program from this Friday for one week only. Good night. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.